0: Hebrews chapter 11. We've been having uh, the rest of the pastoral staff teaching for us, but I'll be teaching tonight. And then, oh, come on. It was one of the staff guys that did that. I signed his paycheck. That's why he did that. He gets a raise. Hebrews chapter. Uh, Dominic wants a raise. Hebrews chapter 11. Last week is our last Wednesday night together, you guys. Last week is our last Wednesday night. Yeah, it's been fun, huh? The food tonight, by the way, was provided by Don and Tyler Morgan's home group. Good sandwiches. Now, who's doing next week's food? What home group is that? Oh, okay. The Donleys. Okay, now it's the grand finale. Okay, the Donleys have quite a reputation for food. Uh, They do our food at Easter when we do the free tacos. It's the Donleys that are in charge of all that and uh, incredible tacos. So we've got some high expectations for the last last Wednesday, bro. Okay? All right. Just meat, meat, meat. Okay. (laughs) Hebrews chapter 11. Tonight we're going to be looking at verses 30 and 31. Let's read them together. It says, by faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. And by faith, Rahab the harlot did not perish along with those who were disobedient after she had welcomed the spies in peace. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word before us this evening. And I know that every time we get together, we we pray that prayer. Thank you for your word. But Lord, we really mean it. We resist it becoming cliche in our heart. We really mean, thank you for your word, Lord. And we ask that tonight your word to be living and active. It'd be sharp. And it would discern the very depth of our being. And Lord, you've led us by your spirit into the studies of Hebrews chapter 11. And we just ask that you complete the good work that you've begun in these next two weeks. That you do a deep and lasting work in us concerning faith. Increase our faith, Lord. Help us to be doers of the word. Thank you that faith comes by hearing. And so as we hear the word of God tonight, increase our faith, Lord. And deal with us in areas of our lives where we're in error either for lack of faith or holding on to things that need to be surrendered or just plain sin issues, whatever it might be, Holy Spirit, as we've opened up our Bibles, as best as we know how now, we open up our individual hearts and our corporate heart. Deal with us as individuals, sinners and yet your children saved by grace. And as a corporate body, your church, Lord, deal with us tonight. Bless this Bible study for your glory and the furtherance of your kingdom, we ask it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So, tonight, then, in our text, we come to Jericho and Rahab. Jericho and Rahab. We're going to be really dealing primarily with Rahab. We'll just talk a little bit about verse 30, but I've got to give you homework. Now, Just about every time I teach, I give you guys homework, and I I hope that you guys take that to heart, because it's not arbitrarily that I assign homework, you know what I mean? I'm not trying to be like a school teacher, and I'm not just, whatever, throwing it out there, but I really believe that the assignments that I give you will add to what you learn here from the pulpit, and that you'll have a richer learning experience if you do the homework, and I was so blessed last week, I assigned homework, and then I went home after second service, got home about two o'clock, and went into my house, and my wife and a dear family, friend were there with Ezekiel 38 and 39, doing the homework and digging into it and cross-referencing and debating back and forth, and I I just sat there and watched them for like an hour and a half, just digging into it, and and my heart was just so blessed, and I was hoping that the whole congregation, all up and down the coastline, was doing the very thing, because they were incredibly blessed as they dug into it, so I want you to dig into for your homework now, uh, after this lesson, Joshua chapters 1 through 6. Six chapters now, don't be afraid, it'll take you about 15 minutes to read if you read it quickly, but I prefer that you read it carefully, okay, and it's going to be talking there about the children of Israel and their conquest of Jericho and the role that Rahab played, and we will bring up a map just to sort of orient you to where Jericho is. There is a map of Israel, and I've highlighted a few places for you by now. You guys are very familiar with the map of Israel. We're whipping her out every single week. Um, But there, right smack dab in the middle, is Jerusalem, just inside the West Bank. And then to your left of that is Tel Aviv. And I put Haifa on there, uh, just to orient you further, because that's where a lot of the missiles have been directed at Haifa, and initially in the conflict. Now, Tel Aviv is where Nasrallah, the head of the Hezbollah, is threatening to land missiles, is in Tel Aviv. And you might have seen in the news this week that Israel said, if a missile lands in Tel Aviv, Damascus will pay dearly. We'll be talking about that this Sunday in Isaiah 17, and that possibly being a fulfillment of prophecy. And then you see uh, the Jordan River. Thank you. That yellow line coming down is the Jordan River. Up near the top of the map is uh, uh, the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea. And you see that Jericho is just on the west bank of the Jordan River. That's how we get the name West Bank. You always hear that in the news. The West Bank. It's the west bank of the Jordan River. I don't know if you knew that or not. And Jericho is just on the west bank of the Jordan River. So the children of of Israel are about to enter in. They're on the east bank. The Lord is going to lead them in with Joshua at the helm. And the first city that they're told by the Lord to take is Jericho. And you're going to read about the awesome crossing of the Jordan River as you do your homework and just the incredible way that that required faith and what the Lord did there. And for the taking of the city, the methodology that God prescribed was one that would require a tremendous amount of faith because it was outside the box. Let's read about it in Joshua 6. Leave Hebrews now. Go to Joshua 6. And let's read about that prescribed methodology from the Lord. Joshua chapter 6, starting verse 1. It says, now Jericho was tightly shut because the sons of Israel, uh, they had sort of laid siege to the city and they were getting ready to take it, you know, and so it was tightly shut. Nobody was going in, nobody was coming out. They're in there. No one went out and no one came in. Verse two, and the Lord said to Joshua, see, I have given Jericho into your hands with its king and the valiant warriors. Now it's interesting to me that the Lord says, see, because they didn't see. And, And faith is what? Yeah, it's it's the hope and the substance of things that are unseen. And I love the way the Lord says, see, I've given Jericho into your hands. But at that moment, they're in camp there and they're just looking at some giant walls. Huge walls that were famous for being impenetrable. Giant walls, a first uh, wall and then a big rampart and then a second huge wall. Known throughout the land for being impenetrable. And they're sitting there, how are we going to take this city? And the Lord says, see, I've given it to you, but frankly, they didn't see. And that's where faith comes in. Verse 3. And you shall march around the city, all the men of war, circling the city once, and you shall do so for six days. Also seven priests shall carry seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. Then on the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And it shall be that when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, and when you hear the sound of the trumpet, that all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people will go up every man straight ahead of them. Now, an interesting methodology that the Lord prescribed for taking the city. Very unorthodox. I mean, they weren't even to use their weapons they were to, for six days, go and march around the city one time and then just leave. And then on the seventh day, it says that they were to come and march around the city seven times and then the priests were going to blow their trumpets. Now, I think if we were to be honest, sometimes faith makes us feel a little bit silly in the natural realm. Because faith is required when God asks us to do things that don't make sense to us all the time. If it makes sense to you, and sometimes God does make sense, but when he makes sense, then it doesn't necessarily require faith. It's when things seem not to make sense that it requires faith. You know what I'm saying? And this didn't make sense at all for the people. And, and thankfully, the Lord has given us, but they didn't have it at the time. Proverbs 3, 5. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. The Lord warned you beforehand that when it comes to trusting Him and believing Him and exercising faith, there's going to be times where your understanding doesn't comprehend it. It's just like how we said in the book of Philippians, chapter 4, that He will give us peace that surpasses comprehension, that comes even when there isn't understanding, and peace more than we normally would have, obviously. And so He gives them this strange prescribed methodology. And sometimes the Lord will do so in your life. He'll call you to do things at a time or in a way that doesn't make sense in the natural realm. It's like with Abraham, you know what I mean? Abraham, you're 75 years old, going to give you and Sarah a kid, but I'm going to wait till you're 100 and Sarah's 99. That doesn't make any sense. Which is why Abraham committed that proverbial work of the flesh, Ishmael. And those are those moments that we're trying to avoid. But when we're tempted to respond in the flesh, according to our natural understanding, is when God has us walking in the supernatural. And the supernatural, quite frankly, just doesn't always make sense. (laughs) But that's where we want to be, isn't it? We want to be walking in the supernatural things of God. We want to be walking in the wisdom of God, not the wisdom of man. And the provision of God and the power of God. Not the provision of man and not the power of man because that doesn't require any action by God whatsoever. But I'll remind you, as Israel would learn, that God's work done God's way will never lack God's blessing. God's work done God's way will never lack God's blessing. Now, I'll just confess something to you guys. As a pastor of this church, there's often times where... I'm called upon to make decisions that are difficult. And what I see in the physical realm and what I see with man's wisdom, with human wisdom, is an obvious and clear path. And it just seems simple to me. And if we would just do it like this, but then as we sit down as a staff and we begin to discuss, they often remind me of some biblical precepts that are contrary to man's wisdom. And we talk about it and we say, guys, it makes so much sense if we would just go this way, but it seems that according to God's word, he would have us do it this way. Well, this way's so much longer and it seems more difficult, you know what I mean? And, And can't we just do this? But we remind each other, well, we could do that, but that's not God's way. And so there's no promise of God's blessing if we go that way. We're doing God's work. And God's work done God's way will never lack God's blessing. And that's what we're looking for, is the blessing of God. And Zechariah 4.6 reminds us, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, saying, Not by power, nor by might, but by my spirit, says the Lord. And he had a tremendous task in front of him. With the rebuilding of the temple, so on and so forth. A tremendous task in front of him. And the Lord said, You're not going to be able to accomplish this in human terms. You can't manipulate it you can't manufacture it you can't take it into your own hands not by might not by power but my, by my spirit says the lord and we need to apply that to our daily lives cuz there's so many times where we want to manipulate situations and some of us are real good at it we can convince we can coerce we can grab onto we can cause to make happen But often the Lord's way is contrary to that, as we see here in this text, a very unorthodox way of doing things. And you can imagine how it made them feel silly. You know, they they walk around the city one day and then they just go back to camp and they just sit around. And I'm imagining the warriors in camp are going, come on, Josh, man, Moses never would have done some cheesy thing like this. With Mo at the helm, we would have been bam, bam, bam. Come on, man, what are you doing? You know, I imagine there was some conflict. And Joshua was saying, well, this is what the Lord is leading us to do. But it doesn't make sense. We're warriors. This is what we do. Yes. But this is what the Lord has prescribed. And then on that last day, to march around seven times. Can you imagine the anticipation? Growing with each time around, with each lap around the city. Getting nearer to that seventh time and knowing. Okay when we get around the seventh time the, the, the priests are going to blow the trumpet and we're going to shout and the walls are going to fall I believe it Lord it's, it's like the anticipation that Noah must have felt when he got on the ark the Lord closed the doors and then it didn't rain for how many days? seven days seven times around seven days same gig Seven being the number of completeness, of course, in the Bible. <laughs> Lord wanted them to be completely sure that it was going to be the Lord when it was accomplished. Can you imagine the Lord shuts that door and you know, and you're like, okay, family. Oh, it's been 120 years building this ark. There's about 120,000 people gathered around watching us sit in this ark now. Here comes the rain. Here comes the rain. Oh, Lord, the rain. The rain, Lord. And you can imagine the crowd. Yo, Noah, where's the rain, man? Oh, she's coming. You watch. She's coming. And then maybe as nightfall approaches. When the night comes, it's going to rain on the land, people. And the night comes and it goes. And another day and another night and another day and another night and another day and another night. The Lord just stretching Noah. Just stretching them. And here just stretching those children of Israel. And then proving himself absolutely faithful. Just like he stretched Abraham in the 25 years of waiting for the son. Just like he'll do in your life. Just like he'll do in your life. Just stretching you. And so that seventh lap comes. The trump of the priests go up. And the shout of the men go up. And and the Lord said that the walls would fall flat. The city walls would fall flat. And the people would go up. Every man straight ahead of him. And as you read on in chapter 6 in your homework, you'll see that that's exactly what happened. The walls fell. Now, that Hebrew there, that Hebrew word for the walls would fall flat. It's not what you might think. When we read that, we think that it means that the walls were going to go like this. Isn't that kind of what you assume? But that's not what happened. That's right. Someone, Wow, someone knows. In the Hebrew there, it means that the wall would just collapse on on top of itself, as if the base just disappeared, that it would just kind of go boom, just collapse straight down on top of itself. Now, in in the last century, there are many archaeological digs done there, and what did we find? We found that exact very thing. We found that the wall just literally collapsed down on top of itself. Now, in a normal siege, that wouldn't be so. In In a normal siege, that wall would have been battered. And there would have been pieces that fell the inside into to the outside. There would have been pieces, you know, tossed aside, so on and so forth. It would have been very obvious. Archaeologists know how to uh, study the walls of a siege city. But, but archaeology tells us very simply that that wall just collapsed on top of itself. Some archaeologists have been able to um, find evidence for an earthquake that happened about 1,400 years before Christ in the region, which is just when this happened. So maybe the Lord used an earthquake. It's no less miraculous if it was an earthquake because the earthquake had to come at the moment the trump sounded and the people shouted. Then the earthquake had to come. At that very moment. It's miraculous. However, the Lord did it. Very interesting also that in the poorest region of the city, they're able to identify what that was. They found one area of the wall that didn't collapse. And you'll see in your homework that Rahab's house was in the wall. And Rahab was promised protection by the children of Israel uh, for harboring them and for taking care of them. And there was one section, the poorest section of the wall, that did not collapse according to archaeology. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that awesome? They also found tons of grain inside the city. You'll see in your homework that this siege happened just after the time of harvest. I think it's chapter 3, about verse 17 or so. It happened just after the time of harvest, so there would have been a lot of grain in the city. Now, normally, when someone laid, laid siege to a city, of course, they would take the spoils of that city, and grain was one of the first things they took. It was not only a, a primary food source in those days, but it was also it had monetary value for bartering. And so it was one of the first things that people would have took when they conquered a city. But all the grain in that city was untouched. They they found vats and baskets and storage areas. It had been burnt, of course. They set fire to the city, but it was never removed. Evidence, evidence that most of the children of Israel obeyed what you'll read in your homework is that God told them, do not take any spoil. The city is to be consecrated unto the Lord. Do not take any spoil. They obeyed the Lord. They didn't even take the grain, though they had many mouths to feed, except for one cat. What was his name? Achan. Achan, but that's in Joshua chapter 7. That's, that's extracurricular if you want to read that. <laughs> but we see here that God does not always do things the way that we might expect them to do them. But I'll tell you this, God always has reasons when he does things in an unorthodox manner. If you look at creation, you'll see very clearly that God is a God of order. You see that in the structure of Adam. You see that in everything that there is. God is a God of order. And he does not do things chaotically. And he doesn't do things randomly. And so though it may not make sense to us, God always has reason. And you know, it's not really for us to ask. And I know at times of tragedy, Lord, why this? Why that? And as people who are just dirt, God doesn't owe us an explanation. Sometimes in his grace, he gives it. But I think that we can spot a reason here. At least I will hypothesize on a reason why God had them lay siege to the city in this way. Here's what I think I think that one of the reasons that God prescribed this particular method for the conquering of Jericho was to leave room for repentance, to leave room for the people, the inhabitants of Jericho, to repent. Because think about it, as Israel encompassed Jericho each day and then returned to their camp quietly, space for repentance was granted to the inhabitants. You understand what I'm saying? There was plenty of time for them to say, okay, Israel is coming against us. And now we're dealing with the God of the Hebrews. And according to everything that we've heard in the land, the God of the Hebrews is real serious. In those days, it wasn't a question of whether or not certain gods existed. It was a question of which one was the greatest. And the rumor circulating throughout the land was the God of the Hebrews is the greatest of all gods. Because the story of the Exodus had been made known. Now Moses prophesied that in Exodus 15 when he sang that song, him and the children of Israel, that the people would hear, the surrounding nations would hear of the exodus, and they would tremble. Now look at the report here. We're going to read in Joshua chapter 2 now. Joshua chapter 2. Starting in uh, verse 8. Joshua 2 verse 8. Now before they lay down, that is the spies that Joshua sent in to Jericho she came up to them on the roof that is Rahab and said to the men I know that the Lord has given you the land look at that I wish many people would understand that today I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the terror of you has fallen on us and that all the inhabitants of the land have melted away before you For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. And when we heard it, our hearts melted, and no courage remained in any man any longer because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God, in heaven above and on earth beneath. You see, the story of the Exodus and the faithfulness and the power of the God of the Hebrews had circulated throughout the lands. And this prostitute would not be the first one to hear the rumor. She would be one of many. And she testifies, we heard about it. And so my point is that everybody in Jericho heard about the faithfulness and the power of the God of Hebrews. And that when anybody uh, was come against by them, well, Their fate was sealed. And so there's even this confession from her. We know that your God, he is the God of heaven and earth. So I believe that the inhabitants of Jericho knew this in their heart of hearts. This is a real God we're dealing with. And that when God gave them seven days, it was room for repentance. It was opportunity for them to repent. He made Israel seem small in their sight, that they wouldn't have foxhole religion, you know what I mean? Oh, man, these guys are going to wipe us out. We better repent. But that it would be very sincere. You have heard. And faith comes by hearing, and not by hearing the word of Christ. Amen? Amen? Romans ten seventeen, And in Romans 10, 17, in context, it's talking about saving faith. But it's the same for the faith by which we live. But they should have exercised saving faith in this God. And I believe that God was giving them opportunity, opportunity every day to repent. And the Lord does the same thing in your life and in my life. The Lord is not slow about His promises. As some count slowness. But He desires that none should perish. It says in Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9. With regards to the salvation of our friends and the Lord's coming. He's not slow about His promises. And this seemed like a slow siege. But the heart of, the God, of God is He desires that none should perish. And in your own life as a Christian, God always gives you room to repent. How often? Did he give Judas an opportunity to repent? I mean, over and over, he says in the presence of Judas, One of you is going to betray me. Over and over. And we see at the Last Supper that there were several opportunities, these moments of tension where the Lord said, Someone at this table this evening is going to betray me. And they all went around the table and said, It's not me. It's not me. It's not me. I think that's what they said with their mouths, but I think in their heart of hearts, they were asking, Is it me? Is it me? He, he was giving Judas, I believe, room to repent. Now, Rahab was different from the rest of the inhabitants. They didn't repent. But Rahab heard the report, and she received it as truth, and she acted upon it, which, of course, is the definition of faith. You know, like exercising faith, acting Upon the Word of God, and, and it says in uh, Thessalonians chapter two, verse thirteen, Paul writing to them says, And for this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you received from us the Word of God's message, you accepted it not as a Word of men, but for what it really is, the Word of God, which also performs its work in you, who believe. And that's how Rahab received it. She received it like the, the word of God and thus it did a work in her. And her outcome, her fate, the days it would follow would be totally different, totally contrary to those who heard the same exact report but didn't respond to it with action. And you know, sadly, it's the same among uh, so much of Christianity today. It's the same in this church week in and week out. We all hear the same thing. The word of God opened to us. And we all hear the exact same syllables. And for some of us, we make radical changes in our lives. We respond to the word of God. We become doers of the word. And for other people, they hear the same thing. They may be even stirred, but there's no real change that takes place. And I think that, obviously, from Rahab's report, the inhabitants of Jericho were stirred by the report. There was some fear, a degree of fear in them and a realization of who the God of the Hebrews was. But then six days passed and nothing happened. And so I can imagine they begin to think, oh, we we heard the word, you know, we heard the report and this and that and the other, but he's not doing anything. There's our wall. It's as big as ever. It's as strong as ever. It's impenetrable. We feel quite secure and they harden their hearts. I think it took seven days, and on the seventh day is when the Lord caused the walls to fall, and this illustrates a profound fact that is how souls are affected by the truth, and yet how quickly the impression often wears off. I mean, how often oftentimes have you sat under the teaching of the Word of God, or in your own home and read the Word of God and said, "I'm changing everything. This is radical." I am changing everything. Everything is going to be different. And you're weeping and you're on the carpets. And ah, you're crying out. Everything is going to change. And then you leave, you know, and you go to Esau's. Oh, what are you going to get for lunch? Yeah, I'm going to get the burger and this and that. And by the evening, it's just that impression is gone. I think it's a sad thing. I think it's a tragic thing. It's exactly... What happened? The people of Jericho were deeply stirred, I believe, by the report of God's judgment upon the wicked. They feared it was their turn next, and their hearts melted within them. And yet, as time passed, there was no right response. And that's because of human nature. And Solomon tells us about that in Ecclesiastes. In Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verse 11, he shed some light on the subject as to why. He says, because the sentence against an evil deed... Is not executed quickly, therefore, the hearts of the sons of men among them are given fully to do evil. You know, the Lord does not, because He's merciful, always deal out immediate retribution. And Paul says what humanity does with that in Romans chapter 2 verses 4 and 5. says, Do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and the forbearance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourselves in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Now that's for unbelievers. For the believer, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But it illustrates human nature. It's illustrated so well in the lives of kids, for those of you who are parents. Have you yet learned that counting to three is not an effective way of training your child? If you have not learned this yet, read some books, you're way out of touch. Counting to three does not work because of their sinful nature. For them, it's just buying time. They're never going to make good on their promises. And then, if you do not make good on your promises, you prove their very point. See? And you, you find yourself as a parent because you're merciful. Two and a half. Two point six four. Two and three quarters. Two and seven eighths. Two and fifteen sixteenths. Two and thirty one thirty seconds. Two and sixty three sixty fours. Two and 131, 130 seconds. And they're just smiling at you. What works with the kid? I said don't do that. That's what works with the kid. Now, not in anger. I'm not going to give you a parenting class. I'm new at the gig. But my point is, lest I digress too far, haven't you noticed that counting to three doesn't work? Because of human nature. And yet God is so merciful. He draws us by his loving kindness but humanity presumes his loving kindness to be ignorance. So so many non-believers are doing today. I'm living the way I want. I do what I want to do when I want to do it and God hasn't done anything about it. Reminds me of a funny story I heard this year. Um, true story. It was in a what was it? I, it was in a, a military academy and the professor had an antichrist agenda and was an atheist and uh, I read this. This is incredible. And he stood up in front of the class and he said, I'm going to show you beyond a shadow of a doubt that God does not exist. And he said, God, if you exist, I'm going to give you five minutes to knock me down. God, here I am. If you exist, you come and knock me down. And he stood there like this with his eyes sort of looking up to heaven or maybe closed. I think it must have been. He stood there like that. Now, you know what? God's not going to knock him down. God does not have to prove himself to puny humanity. God does not have to stoop to that. But he would presume that to be God not caring or God not being there. But I love what happened. Someone got up out of the back row, walked forward and just uh, knocked the guy out and said, God sent me. That's awesome. And we see that the, the exact same report, the same word about the Hebrew God was heard by the ears of Rahab and the other inhabitants, but it was only Rahab that heeded it. And there's a difference, you know, between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. as illustrated by 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 9 through 11. says, Paul writing, I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful. Uh, his previous letter bummed him out. It was pretty gnarly. Not that you are made sorrowful, but that you are made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you are made sorrowful according to the will of God, in order that you might not suffer loss in anything. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. For behold, what earnestness this very thing, this godly sorrow, has produced in you, what vindication of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what avenging of wrong. And I suggest to you that as they heard the report that Rahab had godly sorrow, there was a true realization that something had to change. She had had the wrong God. But I think that the inhabitants just had that idea of worldly sorrow. Just a a momentary fear, you know what I mean? But, But no real lasting change. And what godly sorrow produced in the Corinthians is very obvious there. It produced in them an earnestness or a concerted effort to make amends. This is how you identify godly sorrow. There was a concerted effort to make amends. An eagerness to vindicate themselves or to be cleared of blame. How do we do that? By repentance. There was an indignation against wrong. They changed their mind about the situation. That's what the Lord wants us to do. He wants to teach us to to, uh, hate evil and love what is good and, and fear the Lord. There was an indignation against wrong that came from godly sorrow. There was fear or alarm that they had done wrong. Listen, that they had done wrong, not just that they were caught. That's often the issue. We freak out and we're panicked and we're bummed because we got caught, but we're not truly sorrowful or sorry or repentant about what was done. But godly sorrow causes that. And then there was a longing and a zeal for things to be set right. The difference between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow is illustrated perfectly in Peter and in Judas. Both of them failed miserably before the Lord. Peter denied the Lord three times and Judas betrayed the Lord for 30 pieces of silver. But Peter obviously had godly sorrow. How do we know? Because the Lord restored him. Evidence that there must have been repentance. Times of refreshing come from being in the presence of the Lord as we repent, he later said, after Pentecost in Acts 3.19. There must have been, we can conclude, a godly sorrow in Peter. But in Judas, not so. In Judas, there was that worldly sorrow. He knew he did wrong well enough. He was bummed out about it. He even threw the 30 pieces of silver back into the temple and told the people, I've bummed it. But instead of letting his sin drive him to the Lord, which is what godly sorrow does and what repentance is by definition, it drove him away from the Lord and the end result was death. And that's what it says here in 2 Corinthians 7 that worldly sorrow leads to death. And I think that so many times, parts of our spiritual life dies, so to speak, the vibrancy thereof, because we don't practice godly sorrow and true repentance. Yeah, I was caught and it was wrong. And instead of running to the arms of the Lord and changing our minds about that and longing to be vindicated and fearing that we've done wrong and having indignation as we've changed our mind about that very wrong thing. You know, we just sort of go away from the Lord, and yeah, that was bummer, and, and that was wrong. And the end thereof is death. Illustrated perfectly in the life of Judas. Both Peter and Judas had the opportunity, I believe, for godly sorrow, for true repentance. And it's just like in the church and inside the church out today. Some people get it and get right, and others, they hear the same thing, and they continue on in their sin week after week. And the inhabitants of Jericho, like Judas, had every opportunity and yet they did not repent. It's like the old saying, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. And I think that is exactly what the Lord was doing in this unorthodox, very strange way of having them lay siege to the city. Was he was giving them every opportunity to drink the waters of repentance. But they refused. Rahab, on the other hand, she received the message. In Ecclesiastes 8.12, just a verse after the one that we read in verse 11, says, Although a sinner does evil a hundred times and may lengthen his life, still I know, Solomon says, that it will be well for those who fear God, who fear Him openly. You know, Rahab initially did not know what the outcome was going to be of her accepting the spies into her house. She didn't know what the outcome of that will be. And you'll see the story unfold as you read it in your homework. But, for her, probably your first inclination was, "This is going to mean death for me." The leaders of Jericho are going to find out what I've done, and they're going to kill me. So we see here, here that true faith is selfless. It was selfless in its expression, and she chose, just like Moses, rather than the passing pleasures of sin in the house of Pharaoh, she she chose to fear the Lord. And Ecclesiastes said, although a sinner does evil a hundred times, it may lengthen his life. And guys, I got to tell you, especially young people, you're going to see people that sin in all sorts of ways against God. And the more they sin, the more they seem to prosper. The psalmist said the same thing in Psalm 73. should add that to your homework. Slightly arbitrary, but not really. In Psalm 73, the psalmist said the same thing. He said, the wicked people, they're prospering in every way. They have length of life and there's bountifulness in their days and they're prospering in every single way. But then he says, and then I came into the house of the Lord and my perspective was readjusted. And he saw, as Solomon sees here, he says, still I know that it will be well for those who fear God and fear Him openly. And she made the profession of faith in Joshua 2.9 when she said, I know the Lord has given you the land. She had the same information as them, but a different conclusion. She was becoming a doer of the word. And so she's commended in James 2.25 as well as Hebrews 11 where it says, And in the same way, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? Now, In the context of James chapter 2, you know when it says that she was justified by works, it's not talking there about salvation. It's talking about the evidence of faith. A.W. Pink says, This does not mean that her good works were the meritorious ground for her acceptance with God, but that they were evidence before men that a spiritual principle had been communicated to her, the fruits of which justified or vindicated her profession, demonstrating that she was a member of the household of faith. You see, the Bible's very clear that there's always going to be an outflow of faith. There's always going to be evidence of faith. And namely, it's evidence in good works. And if you wanted to narrow them down, selfless ones indeed. Selfless ones. That, that, that is to characterize the Christian, the follower of Jesus Christ. In John chapter 13, when he, after he washed their feet, he said, A student is not greater than his master. And I've washed your feet. And so you should do one to another. And so I want to ask you in all humility, because I love you guys, is there evidence of your faith? Don't conjure up your own evidence. Oh, I feel a certain way. Or I think this, or I think that, or I've been to church X amount of times, or I went to the prophecy conference like Pastor Britt told me to do. Don't conjure it up. The Bible says it will be evidenced by good works. And that those good works will be characterized by selflessness. And so don't answer me tonight, but ask answer the Holy Spirit. Is there evidence of your faith? In a court of law, could you be convicted of having faith in Christ Jesus? Would they be able to gather empirical data? Things that are observed. God has prepared good works beforehand that we should walk in them, Ephesians 2.10. They are the evidence of faith. Is there in your life evidence of faith? If not, if not, you need to consider whether or not you've truly been born again. Because I think that when someone is born again, there's going to be evidence. And Jesus told us in the parable of the tares and the wheat that there will be those who look just like Christians until it comes time to bear fruit, which is the only time that they're discernible. And there are always people within the church and within the community of faith in Jesus Christ that can talk the talk. They know the Christianese. They know when to show up and where to sit and all the right places to be. But there's no true evidence. They couldn't really be convicted of being a Christian. And even though she had such wonderful faith, I want to point out to you that her faith was imperfect. I want to point out the imperfection of her faith. Begin to read in Joshua 2, starting in verse 1. It says, Then Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men as spies secretly from Shittim, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. So they went and came into the house of a harlot, whose name was Rahab, and lodged there. And it was told the king of Jericho saying, Behold, men from the son of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. And the king of Jericho sent word to Rahab saying, Bring out the men who have come to you who have entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, Yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And it came about when it was time to shut the gate at dark that the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hidden them in the stalks of flax which she had laid in order uh, order on the roof. So the men pursued them on the road to Jordan to the fords and as soon as those who were pursuing them had gone out, they shut the gate. And there's where we picked it up in verse 8. Now, the imperfection of her faith though she exercised faith wonderfully and that she welcomed the spies in peace, was that she lied. The imperfection of her faith is that she lied. This is not in scripture for us to imitate. I've often heard Christians, well, Rahab lied, a little white lie. You know, what does it matter? And You know, the, the ends justifies the means. Not so in the economy of God. This is not here for us to imitate. Nor was her being a prostitute. Do you read because she was a prostitute and she had great faith? Do you now think, well, it's okay to be a prostitute? Then why do Christians surmise, oh, it's okay to tell a little lie, because Rahab did, and that the ends justify the means. Judas hung himself. The Bible doesn't teach that we should hang ourselves. It's one of the ways, by the way, that you know the Bible is authentic and that the author is God because it reveals the sinful deeds and the follies and the deceitfulness of man. If man writes a book, they don't put those things in there. When God writes a book, he puts it in. But it begs the question, I think many Christians have asked it throughout time, is it okay to lie at such a time? I mean, it seemed like a good thing, you know, they would have killed him and and, and why not tell a little lie? But I, I want you to notice that back in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 31, it said very expressly why she was mentioned in the hall of faith. It said because she had welcomed the spies in peace. It does not say there that because she lied about it or that she protected them through the lie. Or that when the leaders of the community came looking, she had hid them on the roof and lied about it. It says that she welcomed them in peace. In fact, it leaves out the latter half of the story. She's not in the hall of faith because she lied. She's in the hall of faith in spite of the fact that she lied. It was her action of receiving them. And I love that what we see by her receiving them is a manifestation of God's covenantal protection as spoken of in Genesis twelve three, like we've been talking about for the last few weeks on Sunday morning. Remember that? I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. And Rahab received them with peace. She blessed them and God blessed her, not because she lied, but I believe in spite of her lie. And so then it seems like a gray area. Well, is there times that we should lie? For example, uh, you know during the Holocaust. There were many Gentiles that took in Jews and hid them from the Nazis. And rightly so. And wonderfully so. And people like that are called by the Jews righteous Gentiles. Rahab is considered a righteous Gentile by Jews today that know the Bible. But when is it okay to lie and when is it not okay to lie? Well, listen. When there's something that we don't know what we're supposed to do biblically is fall back on what we do know. And what we do know from Proverbs 6:17 is that God hates a lying tongue. I mean, that's a for sure. That's very clear. God hates a lying tongue. And who's to say that if she had told the truth that God wouldn't have preserved them in some other way? I would rather be found arguing on the side of Scripture than on the side of human wisdom. I, I think that it was an imperfection of her faith. I have to lie right now. I think that when we do God's work, God's way with a righteous standard, we'll never lack God's blessing. I think that if she had told the truth in this situation, that God may have protected in one way or another. Who's to say it's hard to say, but I know that Proverbs 6, 17 said, God hates a lying tongue. And yet, at the same time, there she is in spite of the lie. Psalm 103 reminds us in verses 13 and 14. Just as the father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he himself knows our frame. He is mindful that we are but dust. And I love that in the New Testament, it's not mentioned that she lied, either positively or negatively. It's like the, God, the, the, the Lord didn't count it. It says in Psalm 130, verses 3 and 4, If thou, Lord, shouldst mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with thee, that thou mayest be feared. And it's like the Lord didn't mark that iniquity. He blessed her for the prior thing. A.W. Pink says... The Lord in his tender mercy is pleased to pass by many of the infirmities of his children when he sees an upright heart and a desire to accomplish his promises. God bears with much weakness, especially in the lambs of his flock. And Rahab was certainly a lamb. You know, those are the young sheep, the little ones. She was obviously very young in her faith. In fact, it was a brand new thing to her. The God of the Hebrews was a brand new thing. And so in the end, summation though I think we have the clear teaching of the word of God, isn't God so merciful? He has compassion on us. He knows that we're just dirt. And if he would mark iniquities, who could stand? He didn't mark that one against Rahab. The other thing we see about her faith is that her faith was a solitary faith. She went against the flow of everybody else in the community. Everybody else in the community let their hearts harden. She went against the flow and I, I, I just tell you Christians that it is going to get more necessary for us to have that stance as the hour goes later and later and later in these last days. Our faith is going to become more and more unpopular. Jesus said that in the last days the love of many would wax cold and that we would be delivered up to rulers. Did you hear about India this, this last week that passed legislation making it illegal for people to convert to Christianity? How hard do you think it is to be a Christian? What about in Venezuela with Hugo Chavez? And in Venezuela, the doors are just closing for Christianity there and for the gospel. In America, I believe, is becoming less and less friendly to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as the hour of his coming approaches, we will more and more and more have to be willing to have solitary faith, go against the flow of the world, Be willing to stand alone. It's very easy to believe when everyone around you believes the same thing, but when nobody believes the same thing. So 2 Timothy 2, chapter 3, tells us to become convinced of the things that we have heard in Scripture. And then the last thing about her faith is that her faith was a sanctifying faith. Spurgeon said this, Rahab's faith was a sanctifying one. Did Rahab continue as a harlot after she had faith? No, she did not. For Salmon, the prince of Judah, married her. We see that in Matthew chapter 1, verse 5. You cannot have faith and yet live in sin. To believe is to be holy. The two things must go together. That faith is a dead faith, uh, a corrupt faith, which lives in sin that grace may abound. Rahab was a sanctified woman. Oh, that God may, might sanctify some that are here. And again, that that is the evidence of true faith is sanctifying in our lives. And I question the person, I question their salvation, that their ideology, their mindset is, what can I get away with and still be okay with God? Instead of, how can I most please my God? Because I think once the Holy Spirit indwells you, then your attitude becomes, I want to please Jesus. I love Him. He saved me. I was going to hell, man. He pulled my feet out of the miry clay, set me on the rock. Transfer me to the kingdom of the beloved son yes. all the promises to him are yes and amen i'm going to heaven i want to please this cat jesus christ you know what i mean but i think if your attitude is how much can i get away with I, I don't know that you're indwelled by the holy spirit again have you really been born again can you imagine my attitude before my wife how much can i get away with and you still make me dinner that's that's not true that's not right Matthew is where we learn, just go to Matthew real quick, real quick, you should have a thumb tab right there, real quick, Matthew 1, Matthew 1 starting in verse 1, this is very interesting, just going to read six verses. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Okay, here's a genealogy of Jesus, his family tree, his ancestors. Look at this. This is incredible. Verse 2. To Abraham was born Isaac, and to Isaac Jacob, and to Jacob Judah and his brothers. And to Judah were born Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and to Perez was born Hezron, and to Hezron Ram. And to Ram was born Aminadab, and to Aminadab Neshon, and to Neshon Salmon. And to Salmon was born Boaz by Rahab. The very Rahab we're speaking of. And to Boaz was born Obed by Ruth. And to Obed Jesse. And to Jesse was born David the king. And to David was born Solomon. Shlomo in Hebrew. By her who had been the wife of Uriah. I want you to notice the women that are mentioned in the family tree here along with Rahab. We have Tamar, Ruth, Bathsheba, and Rahab. All of these women, as well as most of the men, if you read on, were questionable in one way or another. Tamar was a prostitute, just as Rahab was, we read in Genesis 38:24. Ruth was a foreigner. According to the Jews in that time, was not a good thing. And Bathsheba committed adultery. We see someone outside of the covenantal people, we see an adulteress, and we see two prostitutes as ancestors to the Messiah. If that does not floor you, that is more internal evidence that the Bible is the Word of God. Because if you and I made it up, it would be the best of the best of the best of the best. The best Jews, only super good Jews would be the ancestors of Christ Jesus. But here we have Gentiles, a multitude of them, prostitutes, adulteresses, emphasizing once again that God is graceful and compassionate and that His choices in dealing with people are all of grace and according to grace. Do not let it escape your notice that Rahab was a harlot. And how profound then that makes the grace of God, that she was the chosen instrument of provision by which those two spies would be safe. And Jesus said, she who has been forgiven much loves much. He said that to the Pharisees when a prostitute was worshiping at his feet. In Luke chapter 7, the prostitute came into the house. The Pharisee fell at the feet of Jesus, and there she wept and worshipped at his feet. And the Pharisee said in his mind, if Jesus knew what kind of woman this was, and it says in the previous verse, round about verse 36, that she was a woman in the city. It's a first century Hebrew idiom, which means she was a prostitute. She was a harlot. If Jesus knew what kind of woman this was, he wouldn't touch her. And he said, wait a minute. Who loves more, the one forgiven a little or the one forgiven much? And even the Pharisees said, well, the one forgiven much. Jesus said, she has been forgiven much, therefore she loves much. And he said to her, go to her, my daughter, your faith has made you well. Where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. And I think it is incredible that here in the hall of faith is Rahab the prostitute. And you know what? You've got a past. And I've got a past. Paul had a past. He was murdering Christians. Well, he said in Philippians chapter 3 I forget what lies behind. (laughs) I can't remember it. (laughs) I forget. (laughs) I forget what lies behind. Why should we remember what God has buried in the deepest sea, removed as far as east is from the west? God says, I choose to remember your sin no more. If he should mark iniquity, who could stand? He says, I choose to remember it no more. So why do you? What a slap in the face of the Lord. You've got a past. I've got a past. I was sexually immoral and a liar and a thief and covetous and did drugs and all those things that you did. I've got a past. But I am no longer defined by my past. I'm defined by the person And the work of Jesus Christ. And God loves to take people with a past and use them for his future glory. God loves to do that. He could have chosen anyone in Jericho. He chose a prostitute to confound the wise. God wants to use you. Don't let your past haunt you. God wants to use you. Did you blow it really, really big? I mean, did you make a really, really big mess? Good. Grace abounds all the more. I mean, are you just a mess? You're the perfect candidate for God to use you. Loves using the foolish and messed up things of the world. He loves it. It's his favorite thing to do. Then he gets all the glory. God has a plan for your life. You have a past. Get over it. He bled for it. He used this prostitute. She is in the hall of faith, a very select group of people. And the next time you begin to think God can't use you, I want you to remember the following people. Yes, Rahab was a prostitute. But don't forget, Noah was a drunk. And Abraham was too old for you know what. And Isaac was a daydreamer. And Jacob, Israel, he was a liar. Leah was ugly. Joseph was abused. Moses couldn't speak well. Gideon was afraid. Samson had long hair and was a womanizer. (laughs) Jeremiah and Timothy were too young. David had an affair and was a murderer. Elijah was suicidal. Isaiah preached naked. (laughs) Jonah ran from God. Naomi was a widow. Job went bankrupt. John the Baptist ate bugs. (laughs) Peter denied Christ. The disciples fell asleep while they were praying. Martha worried about everything. Mary Magdalene had seven demons. The Samaritan was divorced, the Samaritan woman, several times. Zacchaeus was too small. Paul was too religious. Timmy had an ulcer and Lazarus was dead. (laughs) So you got no excuse anymore. Come to Jesus Christ, ask Him to forgive you of your sins and use your life. That's what he does. If you've been broken and bruised and beat up and messed up in every way, you're the perfect candidate for the glory and the kingdom and the work of God. Amen? Amen. God, thank you so much for that encouragement. And Lord, I pray for those of us tonight who, even in light of your word and the truth thereof, struggle with those things of the past. Lord, I ask that tonight in this house there would come freedom, that your grace would rain down as we now begin to worship you as we now enter into your throne room. Thank you that it's a throne of grace that we enter into and that help can be found in the time of need. Lord, I ask that if there be anybody in this house tonight weighed down with the burden of sin that you would set them free. I ask that you'd remove that burden of shame and guilt and condemnation from them by the finished work of the cross and that you'd place upon their shoulders in their life your burden your yoke, which is easy and light, and that they would come and learn of you for you are humble and kind, Lord. Thank you that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Tonight, as we worship, prayer team will be up here. Communion is up here. Man, if the enemy's got you all bound up in shame, please get free tonight. If you need help, we're here to help. Come forward and let let the prayer team and the pastors pray for you. They'll lay hands on you, anoint you with oil if need be. Don't leave this house bound up in shame. That's not the Lord's heart for you. He died on the cross to conquer that. Maybe tonight you just want to come forward to the prayer team and say, Hey, I've I've dealt with the past. I've left it at the foot of the cross, but I want to know what the future holds. I want God to use me. And they'll pray for God's anointing to come upon your life and for God to use you. Maybe you just want to come and take communion on your knees here and remember the blood that washed you white as snow. Rahab was a harlot, but she was washed white as snow. We'll see her when we get to heaven. Dancing on streets of gold. Totally sanctified, brand new. That's us now and that's our future. Don't leave this house tonight with any other reality working in your life. If you need prayer, come on up and communion is here.